Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast about all things therapists. And we are once again joined by one of our audience's favorite, one of my favorite people, Dr. Jamie Marriage. She's back with us for a third time. She has talked about dissociation before, trauma and the 12 steps. She's joining us as one of our keynote presenters at Therapy Reimagined 2021. And just always so pleasant to have you and thank you for spending some of your day with us. Oh, it's my great pleasure to be here again for the third time. First third time guest, first real third time guest. Sorry, Ben. I'm excited. (laughs) So we'll definitely put your other episodes in our show notes so people can find all of the wonderful knowledge that you've shared. But for our new listeners, who are you and what are you putting out into the world? So I am Jamie Marich. My pronouns are she, they. I am the founder and director of the Institute for Creative Mindfulness. That's my main professional gig. We are a training program primarily focusing on EMDR therapy, yet we also do training in expressive arts therapy and some of the modalities that are related. Kurt was in one of our first classes of EMDR therapy training, so Kurt has a special place in our heart. And EMDR therapy has been my primary trauma modality that I've used through my whole career. Although expressive arts, trauma-informing 12-step work, clinical trauma-focused yoga meditation, I do a lot of things because I do (laughs) think that is required to be a good trauma-focused therapist to have have a pretty amazing repertoire. So I also write books. I, I love to write mostly for other clinicians, yet some of the writing I've done has also ventured out into reaching the general public. And I just love hanging out and chatting with people who are doing innovative things because to really change this world, we don't just need to think outside of the box. I really think we need to shatter it in a lot of ways. So I'm, I'm game to chat with people who are doing that. We have therapy reimagined and you've been using hashtag redefined therapy kind of independently. We've kind of each come to our own conclusions in mm-hmm. this. What's your story behind redefined therapy? Yeah, so the Redefined Therapy hashtag was birthed in 2015, 
right when my book Dancing Mindfulness came out. So Dancing Mindfulness is a movement modality that I, I don't like to say I created it because dance and mindfulness are two of the oldest healing mechanisms on the planet. Uh, I, I believe I, I put them together as a modality for trauma-informed expressive arts therapy. And, and that happened pretty early on in my work. And then in 2015, I got a deal with uh, Skylight Press Publishing to put out a book on dancing mindfulness that was more for encouraging people to develop an individualized practice in dancing mindfulness. And in the last chapter, I wrote in that book how Yes, I'm a counselor. Yes, I'm proud to be a counselor. But it's not really what's going on in traditional counseling offices that are exciting me so much anymore. It's what I see happening in communities with advocacy, what's happening in expressive modalities, what's happening with people connecting back with indigenous roots of healing. And I really think our therapy, especially our therapeutic profession that's defined largely just by the talking cure needs a serious facelift. And I'm not that excited by therapy anymore, if that's what our field is going to be. And so I wrote up this chapter. And then my editor at the time, Emily comes back with, why don't you name this chapter redefining therapy? Hmm. And I saw it, I got chills, everything in me said yes. And at the time, I thought was, oh, I can't do that. Like, (laughs) the establishment is going to think even more ill of me than they do already. But because I felt so excited by her suggesting that chapter title, Redefining Therapy, I said, this is what this is what we got to do for sure. And then Holly Spienberg, who was my social media person at the time, started the hashtag Redefine Therapy. And I think since then, when you package together everything I do, my approach to EMDR, my approach to therapy in general, doing the expressive work, the community work, uh, Redefine Therapy really defines who I am as a person. So it's very much a hashtag that I identify with and love to use. What parts of therapy need redefining? All of it. It's <laughs> <laughs> my gut answer. Well, oh, where, you know, where do I begin? I, I want to be very careful here because when I answer this question, I know it could come across like I am disparaging science, like I am disparaging research. And let me be very clear, I am not anti-science, especially around medical issues, as evidenced by what's going on in our modern climate. I do think, however, that when it comes to human services, when it comes to therapy, when it comes to the human condition, we actually do us a disservice by looking at it just as a science. Because the human experience cannot be fully quantified. And I know a lot of people try in order to legitimize us, what we do as therapists, to legitimize conditions like dissociative identity disorder. We have to scale it to prove that it exists. And as a result, a lot of the lived experience, which really defined the building of healing professions, gets neglected. So I trained in my doctoral work as a phenomenologist, which is a big fancy word saying the study of lived experience. And one of the core tenets of phenomenology, as defined by Edmund Husserl, is that the human experience cannot be quantified. That by its definition, phenomenology rejects any kind of Galilean scientific notions that the human experience can be quantified. And unfortunately, what what tends to happen is in, in more modern times, when there's been more of this push 
to manualize, to go so medical model in order to legitimize what we're doing, a lot of the soul gets missing. And that's a idea that I, I have been emphasizing in a lot of my more recent writing. So I think if we're looking at overall, what needs to be redefined, it's that, that uh, therapists need to go back to lis- really listening to their clients. <laughs> and I'm working on a new book right now. Uh, the working title is Dissociation Made Simple, but we're still kind of playing around with that a little bit because yeah. I have other made simple books. But it's really giving me a platform to say everything I've ever really wanted to say about dissociation <laughs> in, in written form. I had the good chance, the good fortune for my interviews to interview Kurt Roundsen, who's an EMDR legend and has been a mentor to me and was is one of the true voices that I think really gets dissociation in the EMDR world. And I I asked him, just like, help me understand your evolution 40 years as a therapist. And he said something that really stuck with me, that if you want to be a good therapist, work with a DID client and really listen to them, really listen to them. And so many of the other interviews that I'm doing for this book, which I'm in process of writing right now, are people revealing, I went to see a helper, whether that be a psychiatrist, whether that be a clinician. And it's like they were just throwing their fixes on me and were not really listening to what I needed. One of the things that I've really learned in my trainings under the Institute for Creative Mindfulness is really this embracing of providing a space for healing, that it's not just about treatment as you just kind of defined in all of this kind of looking at the traditional therapeutic establishment, what is keeping them so rigid, even as we do incorporate more and more different cultural ideals, we listen to more people with lived experience, we do take on more of this healing aspect. What's keeping the fuddy-duddies so rigid? I think it's a fear <laughs> of them looking at their own trauma a fear of them doing a lot of their own work. Even Kurt and Katie amongst EMDR therapists who are in theory supposed to be more trauma informed, right? I have observed such an us versus them mentality with the people with complex trauma and dissociation, people with so-called personality disorders. And I find that once clinicians are willing to really drop that us versus them and do their own work, and I don't mean just like the 24 prerequisite hours you may have to do in your graduate program, or just do a little spot check CBT here and there where you need it, but really do of yourself what you're asking your clients to do. And I think until the field embraces that more widespread, we are going to stay very stuck. We are going to stay very manualized. We are going to stay very much in this like expert peon type of role, which I don't think healing was ever intended to be in the first place. I mean, part of my work has taken me really into looking at indigenous roots of healing. And so many things from those indigenous cultures and their lessons of healing teaches us things like, if you can go outside with people, go outside with people be in nature. It doesn't have to be so office bound, right? The importance of singing, silence, the expressive arts, dancing, drumming, getting actually experiential with your healing, having a feeling experience instead of just a thinking experience is all very important. And I think so much of where modern culture has brought us to, and I I don't think 
there's necessarily anything unique about this last century that's done it. I think this has always been the human condition. And intense commercialization has just made it worse, is this idea that feelings are bad. Mm -hmm. If you have feelings, you're weak. And I think as a society, we suffer long term and widespread from something I call feelings phobia. And I would wish that would not be an issue amongst clinical professionals. But the more and more clinical professionals I train, the more and more clinical professionals I interact with, there could still be this idea of, I don't know what to do with their feelings, meaning my clients, because I don't know what to do with my own. And that's where more of your cognitive manualized interventions just become safer. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. When there's so much of a competence base of like, I hear, I, I, this is what I do. I, I do this to the clients. I, I, I'm mm-hmm. able to, it's very controlled. And I think the messiness of real life is lost when we get so manualized. I, I'm, I was just, as you were talking, I was thinking about how in community mental health, I was taught how to write a behavioral note and how to get the clients to say the things that I needed for my behavioral treatment plan. Like it became this puzzle that oftentimes had nothing to do with the client at all. A game. It was a game. Yeah. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And so to me, this idea of being able to embrace the the lived experience, the messiness, I love getting outside. I love all of the things that you're talking about. It seems so important for us to make these moves, but you're saying it's societal. Like yes. as a society, we're not going to be able to do what we need to do. How do we address it at a, at a societal level? I mean, as therapists, if that's what we're doing, we need to address it at a societal level. What are the... What are the moves to make here? So first thing, and I don't know when exactly this is going to air, we're recording it here, uh, kind of middle-ish of August. I look at what just happened with Simone Biles in the Olympics Mm -hmm. and the decision that she made to take care of herself physically because mentally she was not in, in the best place. And as anybody who follows current events knows, there tended to be a split uh, opinion online on Twitter, a lot of us applauding her for taking care of herself and then people disparaging her as weak. And I mean, I applaud Michael Phelps, who not just in response to what happened with Simone Biles, but for the last several years has really been drawing attention to uh, to the, the plight of mental health. While I don't think celebrity holds all the answers, because there's certainly yeah. a lot of issue with celebrity culture too, 
I, I really feel that people coming out is more of the answer. And, and I'll speak to what that means for us as therapists too, because I, I do think it can have a lot of impact when people of celebrity who are admired, especially, and I, and I don't, this is going to sound a little weird, but especially someone like Michael Phelps, who and uh, is, you know, the greatest of all time in swimming and somebody who's seen as like this behemoth who had good mental strength and all of this. And I just applaud his willingness in recent years to show his vulnerability. If you haven't seen The Weight of Gold on HBO, it's fantastic. It's, it's a deep dive into what a lot of uh, athletes go through. But even at a non-celebrity level, more of us just need to come out about our struggles. And that needs to include professionals like us, who on the surface allegedly have our shit together. Because we have <laughs> podcasts and a company and run a conference and yeah. and all of this. And and as both of you know, I, I have progressively come out more and more with my struggles with every year of my life here and more and more about my background. And I get so many messages of people saying things like, thank you, Dr. Marich, for your vulnerability. You know, I'm so grateful for it, et cetera, et cetera. And I told my friend once, I live for the day when that's not such an oddity. And I get those kind of messages because I, I think everybody has a right and could make an impact if they learned to or were inspired to embrace vulnerability too or got what they needed. I, that might be the better way to say it, got what they needed to feel safe enough to come out and be more vulnerable about struggles. In that sense, and mm -hmm. with all of the social change that has been happening here over the last couple of years, whether it's right. in regard to COVID, whether it's in regard to Black Lives Matter, are we as a field actually embracing these ideals? I, I mean, I know people like you and Katie and myself are, but are we seeing these echoes really come out that is creating the space because it does feel like we're potentially at a tipping point in our field to yeah. embrace this. And I think like at a lot of places of tipping points, you're naturally going to have people who want to embrace it. You're going to have people who want to resist it. And you'll have people in that middle ground who, you know, know that change is inevitable, know that it's probably going to be best for them and their, fo their folks they work with if they embrace change, but they're dealing with the cobwebs, the sticking points. What, what is keeping me from doing this? And, and Kurt, I'm glad you mentioned so much of what has been brought to the surface in the last year, COVID and Black Lives Matter, of course, being the obvious examples, although both represent struggles that are nothing new as far as yes. I'm concerned, right? And, you know, questions come up all the time. Is it the space of the therapist to be an advocate? Is it the space of the therapist to be political? Or do we need to be this blank slate as much as possible for our clients? And the answer for me has always been both and. Because I know as a clinician, I need to be able to bracket my biases enough if I'm working with somebody who sees the world differently than me. But I also know that with my public face... I think the more and more we have a public face like us, the more that we're established in our therapeutic community, we have to speak up. We have to really be be an advocate for these kinds of changes. And for me, my main platform I've mounted is being vulnerable about your struggles, because that's the only way we'll break this divide. Because I think so much of what ails the world, the human condition, is this excessive tendency we have to other 
Uh, in one of my books, I cite Pastor Nadia Boltzweber, who's a super awesome progressive preacher. And she says, I think our drug of choice in this society is thinking we're better than other people. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think a lot of the changes that dominant culture members are being asked to make requires them to look at, release any implicit lessons they've gotten that they're somehow better than others. So uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of work to do. But I yeah. think it is important for therapists, especially therapists who are more public facing, meaning who have podcasts or run conferences or run training organizations to take these stands. I mean, that's something that we as ICM looked at very deeply last year, where uh, I, I took bolder stances with some of the political stances that we took knowing I might alienate some customers. Right now, the Institute for Creative Mindfulness is sponsoring an EMDR therapy training program specifically for BIPOC clinicians. ICM is fortunate enough to have enough uh, staff members, team members who are persons of color where they can run the training and the rest of us can stay out of the way. I mean, we've gotten hate mail about that from other therapists, from other wow. EMDR therapists because they they see it as separatists and divisive and ignoring the fact that there's literature and research and lived experience to show how people of color can benefit from having their own spaces without the white gaze and how so many folks who are coming into the BIPOC training now are saying they were hesitant to do EMDR training before because they weren't sure how they were going to be met. It's a very different stance that you're describing then obviously the blank slate and, and Kurt and I've obviously talked about this a mm -hmm. number of times that that the blank slate is bullshit but well yeah it, <laughs> <laughs> like how you know only only white men can be blank slates right I mean there's there's something we're bringing into the room mm -hmm. uh but and even in that regard I don't think that's true either it's just anyway I'll I won't go down that rabbit hole but I think it's something where when you've been talking about this vulnerability in public spaces and and even this us them and getting rid of the us them for me i just have been really reflecting on conversations i've had with my own therapist when i start relating to the stories that my clients have been telling and recognizing i'm like them when mm -hmm. i thought i wasn't and and it's, this is older work, but I, I felt like that was so monumental to me. And I hadn't realized how, like the way you described it really helped me put it into, into kind of a frame is that in separating myself, it was very much for my safety and not for the benefit of the client. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes the way when I was trained a million years ago, it was that mm -hmm. we must kind of hold this safe frame. We have to kind of keep ourselves out of the room we have mm -hmm. to keep ourselves out of that. And we, we can't be vulnerable with our clients. Right. And, and to me, I think it lacks a, a, an authenticity. It lacks a connection. And it completely stifles creativity. If we have to be mm -hmm. so in this box of this protected space of I am the expert. Yeah. So I don't know and if I have a question there, but yeah. <laughs> I, I do have a response because to that I would say, and, and I'm really getting this lesson from doing the research on the new book, it's not to say we as therapists can't have boundaries. 
with our clients. Sure. It's not to say we as therapists can't have boundaries about what we share publicly, because I think, uh, and this is right from Brene Brown, how yes, vulnerabilities, I'm obviously radically paraphrasing her, but basically, vulnerability is a good thing as she emphasizes in her work, but it does come with boundaries. So I, I yeah. think we could definitely have those boundaries. But a word that's been coming up a lot in the new interviews with for the book is the word transparency. Mm. So even for folks who have like profound DID, profound attachment trauma, who can get skittish, who can get very reactionary when a boundary is set, have shared with me, we, we know that we value transparency, like saying up front, this is what I can or can't do as a therapist. This is what I am or am not willing to do as a therapist. And if you can be transparent about that and get that established up front, I think it does open the path to more vulnerability and authentic sharing in a way where it becomes safe enough for you and the client both. Because yeah, that, that's a whole other issue we can look at too, right? Is what is appropriate to disclose of ourselves to clients? Because I do think it has to be navigated on a case by case basis. I wrote an article on that once where you it never wants to be making it all about you. Sure. Uh, but I also think a good part of therapy is getting feedback from your clients. And I'm not talking about like the survey feedback, because there's a whole school of therapy that promotes that. And yeah, I think that's for the more quantitatively minded. But for those of us who are more qualitatively minded, it's asking your clients questions like how is this working for you? Is there any adjustments we feel we need to make here? in order for you to get the most out of what you need here to, to reach your goals. And I've downright asked clients before, do you find it helpful when I share about myself or not? Yeah. And uh, I, I will honor that. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. I think it's something that, you know, I serve on an ethics committee. I teach law and ethics. And this is a, an area of the field that I see us embracing more of mm -hmm. that we should share what our values are and how we make our approaches, because that does help make our clients better able to choose from an informed place, better able to right. choose who their providers are. Right. And I think what this will do is help us to embrace, you know, from, from a client and, and, and minimize the number of just like bad matches with therapists in order mm -hmm. to create better opportunities for healing rather than pretending that we're this homogenous field. Right. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, and, you know, Kurt, I touch on this in the EMDR training where when we speak on complex trauma, we are in a newer world where if a client asks you what you believe about something, you have to be able to answer it transparently. And it's not to say that, well, if you're a Trump supporter and I'm a Biden supporter, we can't do therapy together because I know a lot of my folks do therapy across party lines, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the key is sometimes when these conversations are had, a person, a client decides they need to go elsewhere. I know when I chose my last therapist and I was interviewing her, I wanted to know what she believed. I needed to know what she believed. 
And her candidness, her transparency about that has really helped. Yet, I mean, I've also spent most of my career practicing in an area where a lot of people here believe differently than I do. And oftentimes those roadblocks can provide an opportunity for building communication, working through a breach, however you may may look at it. So I think part of redefining therapy is also recognizing a lot of the conversations we may have had back in grad school are not the real conversations we need to be having about how we handle doing therapy in the modern climate. So there's there's that facet of it as well. You know, talking about law and ethics, Kurt, you might find this interesting. I, I just did a really cool interview this week for the book with my state board here in Ohio. Because when I talk about coming out and radical transparency at a public level of therapists, a lot of the concern I get is, what if somebody turns me into my state board? What if a client sees something I've done publicly and and turns me in, et cetera, et cetera? And and there's a lot of this fear that by coming out, you're somehow going to be discredited. And that's a fear that I've worked through personally, because I've long stopped caring what people say about me. But I think there can be that sense of scariness with, uh, you know, will my livelihood be taken away if it comes out what a hot mess I really am? And I had a very delightful conversation with the board about how things are handled, at least in our state, where I know it definitely put me at ease about being someone who's out. And I don't know if that would have been the case many, many years ago. So I think some of this this advocacy about ending the stigma and people in the field are human too, has has taken us in, in a good direction. But I, I really think, and I know I've talked about therapists coming out, and we've talked about celebrities coming out. But I think it can also be super amazingly powerful when someone like a lawyer comes out, or a finance manager, or uh, just people in all walks of life, all walks of professions. It's been delightful having conversations with my legal team about mental health, opening the door for that. It's also, I, I just think so many people think they're the only one who go through things. And, and that's not an unusual thing. We've talked about that before. But I think people in professional positions who are afraid of getting discredited, they often feel they're the only ones going through something. And uh, there's just a lot of power in admitting that we're not and realizing that we can have connection and community together. It's an interesting idea to have community around mental health concerns, because I think that that idea of I'm not the only one and all of those things, I, I, I guess the, the place that my mind keeps going to is this fear that they, that folks have around laws and ethics and, and that there's this movement of folks, whether it's decolonizing therapy, reimagining therapy, redefining therapy, you know, blowing up therapy, like that there's, there's this idea that if we were to actually take therapy where it needs to go, all of the current law and ethics, laws and ethics wouldn't actually apply. I think the three of us here, I don't think believe that, but I, I think that the question I have is, is there room to truly move into these healing spaces as licensed clinicians in ways that still still tie back to what we originally learned because it seems like there's there's a a spectrum of beliefs around the usefulness of of 
therapy mm-hmm. as it has been practiced? That's a great question. And <laughs> I think my short answer is I don't yeah. know. It's it's an evolving it's an evolving answer. Uh, it's an evolving answer and and I think I'm at my own career crossroads right now where I look at going forward, will I do more good as an advocate yeah. than a therapist? You know, as an advocate who was a therapist, you know, or has therapeutic insight. Because I, I think about what's the definition of clinical work, at least yeah. in Ohio, it's a diagnosis and treatment of mental and emotional disorders, right? And even though I'm, you know, up in the air about the utility of di- like even something like diagnosis, let's start there. I have a both and feeling about diagnosis, because on one hand, I think we can get too caught up in labeling people, we can get too caught up in defining people by their diagnosis. But I've also seen cases of where people will read a diagnosis, and they feel completely empowered because something Mm -hmm. actually describes me. Uh, like, oh my gosh, no, nobody's ever shared this diagnosis, like the PTSD diagnosis, or we see it with, with the dissociative diagnoses. And I've, I've even seen some people get moved when they read the borderline personality disorder diagnosis, because it's, well, these dis, this describes what yeah. I've struggled with. So, I mean, that's an example of a both and, where I, I'm, I'm not at the place where I'm totally anti-diagnosis, but there's some clients I'll work with where it's like, I don't think really we need to worry about the label. Like we know trauma is an issue. We know trauma healing is an issue. What do we need to put down to play the game? So, you know, so to speak. But then if you look at the second part of that, you know, definition treatment of mental and emotional disorders, now part of the conversation now is, okay, what's a disorder? And we know the, de- the correct definition here where there's functional impairment, et cetera, et cetera. But even a lot of us in the dissociation community, uh, like I technically have a dissociative disorder by diagnosis, at least how I was diagnosed. But I've embraced the identifier that one of my colleagues uses right now, which is I have a dissociative mind, or she'll say I have a dissociative experience of life. Because for me, it's no longer a disorder, but it is still something that I live with. I think a big part of being trauma informed is a willingness to be flexible with language, a willingness to be flexible with concepts. And I'm always that kind of person who's lived in the both and where I, and I think, you know, that with my trauma and 12 step work, like I'm a vicious 12 step critic, but I don't think we have to throw it all out either. And at least for now, as I try to negotiate this question of, ah, does the therapeutic system need to be blown up? I like that you said that, Katie, because there are some days I feel that. There are some days I feel like I'm working in the service of the therapy industrial complex. And the, the real good work I do is when I still talk to 12-step sponsees, and it's a relationship where no money's exchanged, it's just the human experience. But you know, do we have a right to make it? So all of these questions, they can keep me up at night. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> um, fortunately, I have tools to deal with a lot of that. Uh, but I think for now, and even answering your question here, I, I think a lot of it is the both and. I think we need quantitative and qualitative, for example, with research. And something I'm going to talk about in the conference presentation is how quantitative empirical research can be viewed as the language of white supremacy, whereas qualitative research encompasses more of the indigenous lived experience of healing. We're, we're living in a world right now where we're navigating both so let's bring in both. Where can people find out more about you? And I, I would just say, 
the projects that you're working on, because I know that your resume of books and presentations and everything else, where can people find out more about you? Well, they could come hang out with us at the Therapy Reimagined Conference. <laughs> coming up here in September. I'm oh, so delighted to be keynoting. A uh, couple different places to find me online. InstituteforCreativeMindfulness.com is my main website uh, for the company that, that I run. JamieMarriage.com is the easiest way you can get all my books cataloged in one place. And then TraumaMadeSimple.com is the free resources site that I keep. That's where all of my videos articles, things I've done for free are collected in one place. On Twitter, I'm at Jamie Marich, Instagram, Dr. Jamie M. And just type in my name on Facebook, you'll find me in a couple different uh, <laughs> professional contexts. Yeah. And we will include links to all of that in our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com. And as Jamie mentioned, she'll be at Therapy Reimagined. And for all of our latest updates on that, get your tickets and all of our latest COVID precautions. Check out therapyreimaginedconference.com and our social media. We'll also include links to those in the show notes as well for all of the updates. And they're, they're just changing every single day. So we will do our best to keep things updated as well as we can on our social media and on our websites. So until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy and Dr. Jamie Marich. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code Modern Therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 